A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 37. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 13. Philae to Carrasco, Part 1. Sailing gently southward, the river opening wide before us, Philae dwindling in the rear, we feel that we are now fairly over the border, and that if Egypt was strange and far from home, Nubia is stranger and farther still. The Nile here flows deep and broad. The rocky heights that hem it in so close on either side are still black on the one hand, golden on the other. The banks are narrower than ever. The space in some places is little wider than a towing path. In others there is barely room for a belt of date-palms and a slip of alluvial soil, every foot of which produces its precious growth of dura or barley. The steep verge below is green with lentils to the water's edge. As the river recedes it leaves each day a margin of fresh wet soil in which the careful husbandman hastens to scratch a new furrow and sow another line of seeds. He cannot afford to let so much as an inch of that kindly mud lie idle gliding along with half-filled sail, we observe how entirely the population seems to be regulated by the extent of arable soil. Where the inundation has room to spread, villages come thicker, more dusky figures are seen moving to and fro in the shade of the palms, more children race along the banks, shrieking for bakshish. When the shelf of soil is narrowed, on the contrary, to a mere fringe of luminous green dividing the rock from the river, there is a startling absence of everything like life. Mile after mile drags its slow length along, uncheered by any sign of human habitation. When now and then a solitary native, armed with gun or spear, is seen striding along the edge of the desert, he only seems to make the general solitude more apparent. Meanwhile it is not only men and women whom we miss, men laboring by the riverside, women with babies astride on their shoulders, or water-jars balanced on their heads, but birds, beasts, boats everything that we have been used to see along the river. The buffaloes dozing at midday in the shallows, the camels stalking home in single file towards sunset, the waterfowl haunting the sandbanks, seem suddenly to have vanished. Even donkeys are now rare, and as for horses, I do not remember to have seen one during the seven weeks we spent in Nubia. All night, too, instead of the usual chorus of dogs barking furiously from village to village, we hear only the long-drawn wail of an occasional jackal. It is not wonderful, however, that animal life should be scarce in a district where the scant soil yields barely food enough for those who till it. To realize how very scant it is, one only needs to remember that about Dare, where it is at its widest, the annual deposit nowhere exceeds half a mile in breadth, while for the most part of the way between Philae and Wadi Halfa, a distance of two hundred and ten miles, it averages from six to sixty yards. Here, then, more than ever, one seems to see how entirely these lands which we call Egypt and Nubia are nothing but the banks of one solitary river in the midst of a world of desert. In Egypt the valley is often so wide that one forgets the stony waste beyond the cornlands. But in Nubia the desert is ever-present. We cannot forget it if we would. The barren mountains press upon our path, showering down avalanches of granite on the one side and torrents of yellow sand on the other. We know that those stones are always falling, that those sands are always drifting, 
that the river has hard work to hold its own, and that the desert is silently encroaching day by day. These golden sand streams are the newest and most beautiful feature in the landscape. They pour down from the high level of the Libyan desert, just as the snows of Switzerland pour down from the upper plateaus of the Alps. Through every ravine and gap they find a channel, here trickling in tiny rivulets, flowing yonder in broad torrents that widen to the river. Becalmed a few miles above Philae, we found ourselves at the foot of one of these large drifts. The M.B.s challenged us to climb the slope and see the sunset from the desert. It was about six o'clock, and the thermometer was standing at eighty degrees in the coolest corner of the large saloon. We ventured to suggest that the top was a long way up, but the M.B.s would take no refusal. So away we went, panting, breathless, bewailing our hard fate. L. and the rider had done some difficult walking in their time, over ice and snow, on lava cold and hot, up cinder slopes and beds of mountain torrents, but this innocent-looking sand-drift proved quite as hard to climb as any of them. The sand lies wonderfully loose and light, and is as hot as if it had been baked in an oven. Into this the foot plunges ankle-deep, slipping back at every step and leaving a huge hole into which the sand pours down again like water. Looking back, you trace your course by a succession of funnel-shaped pits, each larger than a wash-hand basin. Though your slipper be as small as Cinderella's, the next comer shall not be able to tell whether it was a lady who went up last or a camel. It is toilsome work, too, for the foot finds neither rest nor resistance, and the strain upon the muscles is unremitting. But the beauty of the sand more than repays the fatigue of climbing it. Smooth, sheeny, satiny, fine as diamond dust, supple, undulating, luminous, it lies in the most exquisite curves and wreaths like a snowdrift turned gold. Remodeled by every breath that blows, its ever-varying surface presents an endless play of delicate lights and shadows. There lives not the sculptor who could render those curves, and I doubt whether Turner himself, in his tenderest and subtlest mood, could have done justice to those complex grays and ambers. Having paused to rest upon an outcropping ledge of rock about halfway up, we came at length to the top of the last slope and found ourselves on the level of the desert. Here, faithful to the course of the river, the first objects to meet our eyes were the old familiar telegraph posts and wires. Beyond them, to north and south, a crowd of peaks closed in the view, but westward a rolling waste of hillock and hollow opened away to where the sun, a crimson globe, had already half vanished below the rim of the world. One could not resist going a few steps farther, just to touch the nearest of those telegraph posts. It was like reaching out a hand towards home. End of section 37